My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. What does feminism mean? Is it really all about equality if black women and their unique challenges aren't welcomed or fought for? And how can we cultivate joy, follow our dreams, and navigate sustaining relationships at the same time, regardless of our sex and intimacy goals? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thankful that you're listening. We are going to dive into a range of important topics today, all of which I think are connected with Amber B. Coleman, a dancer, singer, writer, and entrepreneur here in L.A. who says she's passionate about art, laughter, fashion, and understanding love. Before we dive in, a huge sponsor shout-out to The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to shop for sex toys, lube, and other sexual health products. Shop online at thepleasurechest.com or stop by one of their stores in L.A., Chicago, or New York for a free workshop. They host them every week, and if you attend, you get a discount on shopping afterward, which is very cool. For occasional Girl Boner updates about upcoming events, fun news, lessons I'm learning, and a whole lot more, sign up for extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. And to really deepen your sexual empowerment journey, check out my new book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment. It's available most anywhere books are sold. You can also pre-order Girl Boner Journal, a companion book that also stands alone. It's full of stories and writing exercises, and I'm super excited about it. Pre-order it on Amazon. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Amber B. Coleman to the show. Thanks for being here, Amber. Thanks for having me. I would love to hear a bit about your early journey. What do you recall learning about sex and sexuality when you were a kid? Well, I grew up in a Christian household, so um, I learned that sex was, um, actually, my, my parents didn't really talk much about sex. Uh, I think it was once I started going to church, I started hearing things about how sex is like bad and dirty, and when you get married, give it to your husband. <laughs> Isn't that interesting to give it? Yeah. You know, like mm. it's not a shared thing for you. It's more like mm. you get to give it. Yeah, um, and uh, but my parents, they told me about, you know, how babies are born, um, but there was no real divulgence into it, really. What yeah. about in school? Did you have that really usually awkward class? Yeah, and I I was confused about, because um, my parents didn't really have that conversation with me until much later. And I remember um, having this instance with a friend where um, she 
uh, her mom was talking about how her husband fell on her. And my friend was like, oh, well, good thing you didn't have a baby. And we were so young. And I was just like, I remember being so confused. Like, what? Like, what does that mean? Is that how it happens? Yeah. Someone has to fall on you? (laughs) Yeah. So, but then once you go to middle school, that's when, you know, (laughs) you start learning about everything. (laughs) Right? From just people gabbing. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I remember hearing all these terms and being like, what? What is a blowjob? Do you blow on something? Like, is it air? Yeah, just these questions come up because it is usually pretty limited. Yeah, yeah. I think now with social media, information is just more pervasive and the internet just being all-encompassing. But before, it was just word of mouth or anybody who was near you. And I grew up around my cousins, around a bunch of girls, you know. Um, So I didn't really know much about it until probably middle school or high school. Yeah. Do you remember hearing anything good about it? Um, no, it was just like this kind of forbidden thing where it's just like, oh, like, don't tell me about that. That's not, I'm not supposed to know about that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really grow up hearing anything about it other than it was for grownups. Yeah. When did that start to change for you? Was it kind of just personal experience and like you said talking to friends those conversations change Mm -hmm. over time as people start to learn do you remember a moment where things started to shift around and you started to kind of just gain an understanding about what intimacy means yeah probably when I had my first love which was at the end of high school and it was kind of just experiences that I would have with him of like us falling in love and wanting to express our love in different ways. Um, And so, you know, kissing and things like that. I think that's when I started to like contextualize it in a new way of like, oh, well, like we love each other. Like, yeah, we want to kiss, you know? Um, Yeah, we want to hold hands. Like, that's not bad. So yeah, like desire starts to be a thing. And you're like, whoa, what are these feelings? I remember feeling like or thinking I had to kind of basically marry anybody I even sort of kissed. Mm. You know, just if you are cultivating that, that's what I learned. So I would just sort of tell myself, this is this is going to be that one, you know, and not really knowing, but just, you know, having these these mixed messages and not being sure. But your body starts start to give you some signals. Mm. For yeah, sure. definitely. So did your family ever talk about feminism? My, um, both of my parents uh, grew up in the South. Uh, My mom grew up in rural Mississippi and my dad in rural Alabama. And um, my mom's family was really involved in civil rights and my dad was involved himself. So all that kind of stuff has been a part of my life. I think um, the feminism part more so when I was in middle school, like my mom would talk about stuff like that. But I think just um, as a country, we kind of have had to evolve in that respect and it wasn't really a big deal until like the early 2000s where we were like okay like we all need to talk about this like it's not just women who need to push this forward but everybody needs to start thinking about this yeah and I do think social media to your point about having access to information things aren't as hidden Mm -hmm. do you feel like that's played a role in getting the word out, you know, Black Lives Matter and and videos where we're seeing things mm-hmm. happening and you can't deny it. Right. Yeah. And I remember reading a book. Um, it was the, the Vagina Diaries, I think it was called. 
Um, and I remember reading it and I remember telling my mom about it and her kind of being frustrated. Like, you guys are getting to have these conversations that we didn't get to have, you know? Oh, you know? Bittersweet. Uh huh. Mm. Um, so I think that's, and so my mom's very passionate about that stuff. Um, unfortunately, has experienced things within the Me Too movement. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, and my dad um, is vocal about it as well. I hope people are also talking about it more with children and in schools because I remember I started out in a very, it was an inner city school in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it was very mixed in every way as far as race and um, socioeconomic status. And then we moved to suburbia, which was so homogenous and like eerily, everyone looked like we were all related. It was just really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember at that time when in the history class you would learn about slavery and I equated slavery is racism, like, and Mm. slavery is gone. You know, that was kind Mm. of the impression that we were given, I think. Yeah. Mm. And I'm hoping that that's changed because it took me quite a while to get to a place where I even realized I had white privilege. Mm. Yeah. Um, Over the holidays when I was spending time with my family, um, me and my dad, we were watching a bunch of movies one day and we watched um, the Martin Luther King documentary on the History Channel. And um, I remember watching that and having it kind of make me think, okay, like racism has taken on a new form now, like a new definition now. And not not because it's manifesting itself in different ways than it did in the past, but more so that just because slavery is gone doesn't mean that racism is gone, you know. But it confused me for a second, too, because a lot of people of that generation are just kind of like, it confuses them as well. They're like, what are these millennials talking about? But it's still in our DNA, and so it's still hitting us. And we're just like, oh, that's not right either, you know? Yeah. Um, so it is It is different now, and I think it can, like, generationally it can confuse people. Um, Gladys Knight recently was asked to sing the national anthem at the NFL, and um, a lot of black artists are protest and black people are protesting the NFL because they blackballed Kaepernick, and so black a lot of black leaders were really frustrated with Gladys Knight, who was like a legend. <laughs> it's like what? But um, but for her, her response as well was of of that generation because she was like, I had to walk through the back door, like I lived this. Like, what are you talking about? you know so her perception of it generationally there's like a a generational difference in perception of racism as well yeah Yeah. that makes a lot of sense like we need to be aware of the progress Mm. which also I think in the women's movement you know I think people talk about remembering times when a woman could get a credit card Mm -hmm. it had to be in her husband's name right you know so it's important to see changes but also to know that there are still are these lingering yeah. Things and because you said it's it's embedded in our culture and in our DNA and and to not allow ourselves to get defensive about that and just try to be curious. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Um and then with all the intersections now as well, I think it's just getting so much more complicated, but we're still having the conversations, you know, like they're coming up and we're talking about it, which yeah. I think is really positive. That is positive. Mm. I really appreciate that when we were discussing you being on the show, that you brought up that you'd like to talk about bridging the divide and welcoming and including black women in feminism and the importance of that. Because first of all, I think it's invaluable. And second of all, 
I try to be really conscientious about not asking black women to educate me. You know what mm. I mean? Not to like do that labor and to to have to always like be the expert. Um, mm. But I really, really welcome and embrace anytime somebody does want to speak about it because I think it's just it is something we need to keep talking about. Could you share an experience? Do you remember an early experience, maybe one of the first times that you felt the effects of racism? Oh, my God. Um, well, it, it's really unique, like, being a black girl who grew up in Orange County. Um, and, like, you know, because there's, like, Orange County and then there's the rest of California, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, Los Angeles is conservative in its own special way as well. Um, but Orange County is not. They don't try to hide it. <laughs> That's really, you know, well said. That's kind of Orange <laughs> County in a nutshell as, as far as I understand it. Yes. Um, and every time I go back now, like from I lived in Riverside um, for a little while and then I moved to L.A. a couple years ago. So every so I've been gone for a while. But every time I go back, I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because the first time I experienced blatant racism was in Los Angeles. It didn't occur to me. Mm. Like in my mind, I thought, oh, of course, racism happens. It happens in Alabama. It happens in, right. you know, you think of it happening yeah. in the middle of the country or but it happens everywhere. Yeah. And and that was really eye opening for me. And, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that it didn't even because if you don't have to think about it, it's very easy to to not. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And I think um, opting in is like really where we're at right now there's this thing that a lot of um a lot of black women and non-black women of color are saying when they're getting into it or having these kind of um conversations with white people or uh, more I don't like the word conservative but of that mentality um they're just saying I said what I said and basically, because it's like, I don't need, you know, to go on and on. If you're not going to opt in, if you're not going to try to understand, like, I'm not going to even use that energy. You know, this is your choice at this point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's that's a really good that's a really good point. Could you just speak to the relationship that you have to feminism as a black woman? Do you feel that there is a lot of work that needs to be done as far as inclusivity goes. I know some people define feminism in all these different ways. Like, are you a this kind of feminist? Are you that kind of feminist? Mm -hmm. How do you see it all? I, it's, I, I didn't really consider the racial component until I graduated college. Um, but I, I don't really identify with calling myself a feminist and I can't really put my finger on why um it might be my intersection of my blackness and my womanhood um but I don't I don't relate to it you know um but I do it's it's it is I think my blackness informs my womanhood so much that to strip those away I just don't and I and I guess the feminist movement historically has been a little bit more of a white identity yeah. so I think that's probably why I don't relate to it I'm like hmm um but I think that um just I more so experience like feminism um in my interactions with men uh in in experiencing mistreatment I think that's my primary experience um bargaining for uh my salary um 
I didn't feel, find that very challenging. Um, when I was in that context right now, I work um, in a, I get to ask for money. So it's not really that kind of thing. Um, but I, I would say definitely in my interactions with men of like, um, I'm a woman, do not talk to me like that, you know, um, or just kind of when men hit on you and it's like, but they're very sexual. It's like, uh, like, please don't. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, I don't know you. What are you doing? I don't know you. Like, I don't want to experience that. <laughs> you know? yeah. Can you just like, you know, treat me like a person and maybe we can be friends, but you're like looking me up and down. Like I'm a piece of meat and I don't appreciate it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's how I experience um, feminism in those respects. There's also like a crisis right now um, with women giving birth and uh, our mortality rates were dying, black women. Um, so that needs to be handled. And then obviously like criminal justice. Um, we need to work on the pay rate as well. The pay gap. There's a pay gap between men and women. And then there's a pay gap between um, women and white women and then women of color so yeah yeah. those need to be addressed everywhere what and I completely agree it does seem that feminism historically has been about like equal pay you know it hasn't been so much about I know Kimberly Crenshaw brought intersectionality into the conversation and Mm -hmm. saying you know there's all these different kinds of privilege you can't you can't just look at one yeah. and lump everyone together. Mm. Um, I think that's that's really important. Regardless of like the terminology, the important thing is what you're saying, like making these differences and yeah. and really looking at it. Mm-hmm. I watched the R. Kelly documentary series recently, and I was really struck. It's, of course, heartbreaking. Yeah. One thing that really struck me was that all of the people that he abused are black girls and black women Mm. most of them were very very young Mm. and one of the journalists brought this up during the series he said I don't think that this would have happened Um, like he would have been convicted right away Mm. if these were white girls and it hadn't really occurred to me that that black girls are more sexualized in our society than white girls are until I started digging deeper and, and seeing that there's actual studies and literature on that. Um, is that something that you feel we need more conversation around? Um, I watched a couple episodes as well. Um, I can't, I know I couldn't do the whole thing cause I'm a very, a deeply sensitive person. So I was just like, know your boundaries. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, super unfortunate um not unfortunate it was devastating and dark um and just they really highlighted the kind of person that he is um just being very manipulative and um just the story with Aaliyah as well like and just that he's messing with these really really young girls it's really dark but I do think um you know, black women are sexualized and parts of it are cultural, you know, like if you go to Africa and stuff, like all of these dances are very tribal. And then in America, they're the same dances, but now they're sexual. And, you know, that's such a good point, because America does sexualize things and and youth in general. Like there's a weird there are cultures that and some of them are the African cultures I've seen where they boobs are not a big thing like they don't sexualize them Mm -mm. so it doesn't matter what shape size whatever you're just they're just honored as a part of your body Mm. and here we've created this whole obsession with them that that makes us all see them as sexual objects and it's totally the male gaze you know um and i guess in this context 
it would probably be the blackmail gaze um, of like, you know, uh, music and dancing is a really big part of black culture. And so, um, yeah, just sexualizing breasts or a big butt, you know, and women want to be considered desirable. Um, and oftentimes, you know, will mold themselves into that image as well. Because uh, so. if that's what you learn, you know, it's it's really hard to, I always feel like, you know, things don't happen in a bubble. So when people sort of will say, oh, all these girls are starting to get all these different procedures and all this stuff, mm. you know, I, I really believe we should be able to do what we wish to with our bodies. I also recognize that right. there's a fine line sometimes between what we have the freedom to do that might make us feel more comfortable with ourselves mm. or it feels like expression and, you know, art and actual um, trying to fix something that's not broken. A fine line, a fine line. Uh, yes. And it all goes back to the individual, I guess, and them knowing themselves. Because um, if you do something in order to appease someone else, eventually you're going to have to deal with that thing because... It's really about coming to terms with yourself. It's so true. It's so true. And I know that self-love and self-acceptance have been really important for you in your journey as a as a person, also as an artist. Mm-hmm. You're a very multifaceted, multi-talented, um, creative artist. What is the most important kind of lesson you've learned in that way? Is there a memory you have, a story from your life mm-hmm. that helped you embrace yourself? Um, my journey is unique in that I've always known who I am. I just had to learn how to love it. Um, I didn't always love it or I'd be like, why am I like this? Or, you know, I feel weird. Um, and so moving to LA, um, was a big, uh, that was me saying I choose myself. You know, I was working, uh, for a politician as a field representative and was working in media and had this very promising career ahead of me. Um, uh, was already being recruited to like move up and stuff, but I was living out somebody else's dream for me and not my dream for myself. And I had had um, these really amazing experiences uh, of meeting people. Um, and uh, I had this one like romantic experience and uh, this guy saw who I really was and I was hiding it and so he saw who I really was and he was like why aren't you doing that that's so amazing so I know it's not super I mean I wanted to do it all along (laughs) but but he was definitely he helped me with that you know and then finally um you know things didn't go well I experienced a heartbreak and then I started to really explore myself and just say you know I'm tired of like not being myself and I'm tired of having my joy be dependent on so many other things except for me, you know, um, that the relationship didn't work out, left me really heartbroken and I had already experienced multiple heartbreaks. So I was like, I'm over, I'm kind of over that. (laughs) And I want to just find my own joy. And I think that has Mm -hmm. to do with being myself. So I saved up my money and then I got a dance scholarship and I said bye to my job. Um, I didn't tell anyone I quit. And then I told people and they're like, what the heck? Um, because I didn't want to hear any anyone's opinions you know uh, good for you I think that takes guts and smarts to do that to really listen to that inner voice and also to know that you don't have to get other people's approval if people are going to because a lot of times the naysayers it's really about them right they're absolutely maybe they feel like they aren't living as authentic as they would be Mm. as they could be so they see you doing it and they're like 
don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I need to do that too is what maybe what they're thinking underneath. Yeah. Like, and I had already kind of consulted people about whether I should take this job in politics or not. And so that's why I was like, I kind of resented it. But at the same time, I, I had a good time and I got to save money so that I could go to LA. So after having that experience, I was like, I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm just going to do this. And then I'm just going to tell people. And it totally is like, people who it's like if you pursue your dream then it kind of validates the fact that I could have pursued mine and I didn't or that I can pursue mine but I'm not so it's really about their fears yeah and one of the lessons there I think if anyone's listening and they are in a space where they're like they want to make a decision and they're concerned about other people's warnings if you will Mm. I think it's really important to know that sometimes that resistance is a good sign because the big changes that are the most empowering usually aren't easy or without resistance right you know yeah it's been um because I moved here like oh I want to be a professional dancer that's always been my dream but it ended up um after I took that leap uh that I had these bigger dreams in me but I was just afraid to pursue them I didn't think that I could pursue them I didn't think that I'd have success and so now I'm in a space where I'm like I'm constantly moving towards my truest north and it's really challenging to kind of strip yourself of that self-doubt and those fears and lack of self-love you often have to experience obstacles in order to work through issues but ultimately um, it's very gratifying you know yeah the rewards are worth it Mm -hmm. right yeah it's really interesting how those challenges, kind of like a heartbreak, right? Mm. I've found in my own life, heartbreak has been one of the greatest motivators. There's something about that where, like you said, you've been through it and you're like, the way is up from here, right? Mm. Yeah. What, What kinds of experiences have you had cultivating relationships and friendships in LA? It's a big, big city. It's close but very different from Orange County and Mm -hmm. starting this whole new chapter. Yeah. Yes. I would say uh, making friendships in LA has been pretty challenging for me. Uh, I'm a girl's girl so I've always had like a big crew of girlfriends and coming to LA I don't know what it is about this city um, but I I have like a big crew of gay boyfriends basically. Um, I have like a couple girlfriends but they're mostly gay men and uh yeah I'm happy about it but um um and it's it's crazy because when I first got here um and I did my dance scholarship the first choreographer that I made friends with and who really believed in me and who put a mic in my hand and said singing my show was a gay male you know and he's still one of my best friends and it's crazy how he's always like just when I'm quiet he hears my silence you know and it's like you know where are you are you okay um he's always pushing me I had this opportunity recently um he was putting on this show and I was super rusty I hadn't danced in a while that's a long story but um I hadn't danced in a while and I was just like you know I want to dance and I want to sing like I can sing and dance I want to do both of those I don't want to be afraid of that um but um, I was kind of quiet and he was like, hey, like dance in the show. And I was like, uh, OK. <laughs> and so I went and I was super rusty and he was really hard on me. Um, and he was just and I um, but I kept going. And then like the day before the show, he was just super hard on me. Mm-hmm. And I like cried the whole day and I didn't really I, I, I mean, I'm an emotional person. Like, I cried on dance floors millions of times. 
<laughs> so I, I didn't really care. And then it was with one of my good friends. So I was just like, I don't care. Like, I'm crying, but I'm still doing it, you know? Yeah. And there was a moment where... I was just like, he kind of moved things around and it hurt my feelings. And I was just like, I'm doing this to be your friend. But if you don't need me, then like, you know, I have other things that I could do. But I'm doing this because I'm your friend. But if you don't need me, like, don't. It's okay. Like, you can exclude me out of it. And then he was just like, why are you giving up? And like, <laughs> I was like, I'm not. <laughs> some tough love. Yeah. And then um, he gave me more responsibility. He's like, I want you to be in it. And he gave me more responsibility. And he's like, I know you can do it. And then I did it. And it was a great show. But yeah, I think the specifically gay men have played a really big role in me realizing my potential out here in L.A. For Something sure. Something really beautiful about that is... Something that also perhaps shouldn't shouldn't have to be a thing, but there's something about knowing that a a man is supporting you, and mm. there is no motive. Yeah, there's no like I'm trying to get you into a relationship. I'm not trying to. Yes, you know they're not sexualizing you. Yeah, and it's something I think that straight men just have trouble not doing, even in friendship. Um, but. I think, yeah, it, it is really special. And I, and maybe that, I, because literally everywhere I go, any job, any audition, I always find myself next to a gay boy. We're like chatting it up, talking about life and stuff. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is that like wavelength that I'm always catching? Like we just find each other, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, it's, almost, it's kismet. It's happening. And the good thing is you do, you are cultivating these friendships, which is really good. Mm. It is hard, I think, sometimes in big cities. There was this article recently, I can't remember where, about New York City and how difficult this woman was saying it's really hard to make friends mm. in New York City where you're surrounded by people constantly. Right. But there's something about the bigness that makes it harder to just grab, like, I just want to go for a walk right now. Mm. Like, to get together with someone in L.A., you might have to take four freeways and be in traffic for five hours. So yeah. there's just complexities that you don't necessarily face if you're in a smaller town and you're like, oh, there's only 10 dancers, so we're all friends. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, it's so it's bigger. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad you are finding those those heartful, soulful relationships. I think that's really important. Definitely. Um, definitely. My first uh, sublet in Los Angeles um, – what I, I just you know it was like totally a godsend and I was like I don't have proof that I can like that I have a job right now because I don't but I have like, I can pay you money up front and they were like uh okay and I, I ended up being in a wonderful apartment with a wonderful roommate so 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 many people have like come in and like given me a hand and said I'll help you go to the next level that's fine like you know I got you yeah yeah and that's important too I think knowing Anyone who's going after a dream when there is resistance, mm. doors will open that you aren't even imagining yet. Yep. If you stay true to yourself. Yeah. Like if you really, the thing that I constantly ask myself is just if I'm stuck with a decision, I peel back and just go, what's the most true thing mm. for me? Because that will inevitably be helpful at large for other people. We're only as good and as helpful as we are to ourselves for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I would love to hear just a little bit about your decision to wait to have sex hmm. because I think in sex positive conversations a lot of times there's this misperception that being really sex positive is about having a lot of sex or a lot of partners mm -hmm. when actually it's about autonomy and embracing your sexuality however you mm -hmm. see fit and I think it's a really valid choice to to wait or to not wait mm -hmm. but it's not one we hear a lot about 
Yeah. Um. So I grew up in a Christian household, and I think that, um, played a big role in my waiting for a while. Um. Still identify as a Christian. Um. And then once I got to college, I kind of walked away from that and was like, "What do I believe? Why do I believe that?" And um, I I think it's still. I still kind of intuitively didn't want to go there um, just because, be honest, I just didn't want a guy to have that over me. (laughs) I was just like, "Mm, no, like, and it just kind of seemed like with some of my friends that once they did that, that the guy kind of got a little bit lax or lackadaisy. And so for a while, I was just like, yeah, I, I don't know where I'm at spiritually, but I don't, I still don't. I haven't met anybody that I want to do that with. Um, and now I wait. Um, I think for me, it just is practical, just based on my predisposition. Um, like, it's not about dangling something in front of a guy's face and saying, oh, you know, um, you I'm, can't I'm withholding this. this or tempting them or whatever. No, it's just about I want it to be right and... I, uh, I'm a deeply sensitive person as well. And so sex is like really intense. And I just, I don't want to, I just don't want to do it unless, you know, you're going to be my husband. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I think it's just it, for me, based on who I am and how I'm set up, it just seems very practical. It works. Yeah. 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 And I think that's great. And you're a very artistic person, so I, I personally feel that our sexuality is very prevalent in our art. Mm. Do you feel connected to your sexuality in other personal, private ways? Because I think sometimes, too, people get the impression, like, you're only a sexual person if you're having intercourse, which actually we're sexual beings. Right. Um, in dance, there's this pretty new genre called heels dancing, and it's where women are dancing in heels if you watch pretty much any um, like concert on a tour, women typically are dancing in like stiletto heels. They're doing like splits and kicks. It's <laughs> insane. I can't even do a cartwheel and I'm like, what? Yeah. Um, and so I train in heels dancing. And so um, it's just really empowering to be like, we're typically, you're, we're dancing, so we don't want to be dressed in a lot of clothes or sweating. So we're, we're typically wearing some booty shorts and a, a sports bra. And um, we're dancing to these empowering songs. We're just like, I'm sexy and I like my body and I feel comfortable and this is for me, you know. So I would say I experience my sexuality in in those classes a lot. And it just feels empowering because it's mine, you know. Yeah, and that's how it should should always be yours. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to think of sex because of the messaging that we get, that it isn't as as women that it's not ours first that it is something we give versus owning mm. it in ourselves yeah absolutely and i think i feel more comfortable with that expression honestly um so that i, I would say that's a big and then just being a woman we're sexual beings when i get dressed i feel most confident when i feel sexy you know yeah. like sometimes i'm getting dressed and i'm like mm, i want to feel sexy you know um I think it's just such a big part of who we are. And a woman's sexuality is so beautiful and so powerful. And I think we should wear it as often as we can, you know. You just gave me chills. That's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So I would love to talk about circling back to uh, black women and 
the need to really continue doing the work to highlight um, mm. also their incredible successes and making sure that we're celebrating those. Would you be interested in sharing just a, some maybe black women that you feel we should all know more about? What's one example? There's this. So um, I'm a, I, as a fellow writer, um, there's this writer named Lorraine Hainsbury and people have you heard of James Baldwin he's yeah, a, a yeah. playwright from back in the day and everyone talks about James Baldwin and he's great he's dope but Lorraine Hainsbury came out they were friends um she came out I think she came out before him she wrote A Raisin in the Sun which was a timeless play that everyone should read I mean oh my gosh it's it's talks about everything that's even going on right now um, but she was such an interesting woman because she got flack from the black community but she got black flack from the white community as well mm. how she really analyzed things in this very um, holistic manner like nothing nothing went left unsaid or analyzed and she was also a poet and really great at um humanizing the nuances that we experience in life so and then she came from like this very um wealthy black family uh and i remember uh there was a story she said of her mom sending her to school in like a white fur <laughs> when she was like four and she got oh beat up <laughs> um it's just she's just a really interesting person um and she's really talented so i want to uh, learn more about her so are there books documentaries she wrote raisin in the sun um Oh, to be young, black, and gifted, which is such an interesting play. It's a bio. It's an autobiography, but it's made of short plays. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna check that out. Did you know that a black woman created what became the maxi pad? Really? Oh, yes, I did know that. Actually. Yeah, yeah, in the 1950s, it's uh, Mary Beatrice Davidson Kenner. She came up with a sanitary belt, mm -hmm. and at the time there were tampons, but not everyone could wear them, and some people had value systems where they didn't believe they're appropriate. So anyway, there were a lot of people who had nothing. I mean, mm -hmm. literally nothing for menstrual blood. Oh and God. so she created the sanitary belt. And without that, we wouldn't have pads today. Wow. She made menstrual hygiene easier for millions of people with a uterus. So it's like mm. pretty awesome. And, yeah. and a name, I just feel like we should, that we should learn that in sex ed, man. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That would be a fun fact to bring up. I mean, not really in that we always highlight, you know, white contribution so I don't understand why it wouldn't be you know an added yeah a part of that conversation I feel like then I would pay more attention if I was learning these cool stories about you know what I mean like that would have made it more interesting than it was kind of scary learning about periods yeah but to learn that you know there was a time when you had to bleed and that was it like and then this amazing person came along <laughs> yeah. you know at a time where um, black women weren't really considered inventors mm -hmm. and who did something so impactful yeah, my yeah. mom told me stories about um, wearing those belts back in the day. <laughs> yeah, they don't sound terribly comfortable now, I have to say, but I'm glad that they existed because I'm like, can you imagine if we had to like, already it's kind of like, do I, you know, yeah. we've come a long way and now we have menstrual cuffs. There's all these different options. Mm -hmm. But again, you don't have those options without starting somewhere. True. Yeah. True. Another one of my um, favorite millennial writers is Alexandra L., um, she's a poet and um, uh, self-care advocate. Um, she's on Instagram and she also has a site and she has a bunch of books that she's written. So I really enjoy her. Oh, that's um, great. On Instagram is a good place. That's one of her main yeah. places. That's awesome. Yeah. Joycelyn Elders gets 
some attention, but I don't think enough. I feel like we need to talk about her more because she was she's a, an American pediatrician and public health administrator. And she has really championed adolescent sexual health needs. And she was Surgeon General, General under um, Bill Clinton. And in 1994, the White House succumbed to uh, Republican pressure to force her to resign because, you know, the AIDS epidemic was happening and all these things. And she said, we should be talking about masturbation as an option for people, for kids who are teens who are tr- who want to have sex. If they're going to have sex, mm. here's this option that's safe. Right. And you don't have to worry about, you know, it's learning your body and and. Mm. And just the amount of bravery that took, mm. because I think she probably knew that she was putting her career at risk. Mm. So now they have National Masturbation Day in honor of her, which Whoa. is really cool. Yeah. That. What about personally in your life? Is there someone that you'd like to highlight? Um, There was my first boss. Um, Well, I would like to highlight Fannie Lou Hamer as well. She was a, uh, made great contributions to the feminist movement. Uh, but there was my first boss when I graduated college her name is dr paulette brown hines she comes from this big family of like educators and politicians her mom is assemblywoman cheryl brown um and she is has played a really important role in my life she reminds me a lot of uh, lorraine hainsbury the playwright um she owns a media group and she helps um you know young black kids find artists find their way uh, she gives them, them an opportunity to make money. She gives them a platform to take on responsibilities and build up their resume and meet people. Uh, she was going to help me get into graduate school when I was thinking about getting my master's degree in public policy. And um, they go on this trip uh, that follows the Underground Railroad of the Enslaved Africans. Uh, her mom created it and made it uh, a requirement for educators within the uh, Inland Empire School District to go on it uh, every year so that they can learn about black history and come back and teach it to their students. Because one year, um, I guess, uh, when she was a teacher, one of her fellow teachers was like, yeah, slavery wasn't that bad. And like, they enjoyed it. <laughs> or, you know, and so she made this trip and she was like, and so like, making educators have to go on it so that they can like, understand the context of it wow that's brilliant profound like her mother and her are just like amazing human beings and um so i would definitely like to highlight them they work with um brown publishing company um yeah their whole family is amazing that's awesome so i'll be sure to share some links to more information about a lot of the people we've been talking about uh people can find that at augustmclaughlin.com forward slash blog. I'll have highlights also to your wonderful work. Sweet. So Amber, I would love to hear a little bit about your music. Tell us about the style, kind of your approach and what you're working on. I'm right now I'm putting together my first body of work. Uh, I enjoy um, old school rock and roll sounds. So like uh, James Brown and Aretha Franklin, uh, Alanis Morissette has that kind of sound as well. Um, and I'm putting out a sound, uh, a song called Pieces. And um, essentially, it's kind of uh, talking about uh, some of the heartbreaks that I've been in, but still um, during the verses, but then on the courses, on the course it says, I just wanted you to pick up the pieces of my heart 
uh, you just stand there. Do you even care about my heart? And so for me, it's kind of tapping into uh, kind of uh, how heartbroken we are just generally and how we're heartbroken before we ever get heartbroken by like a lover um, and how it's kind of like a divine uh, spiritual thing that we need to heal um, more so than um, and that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. So mm-hmm. we are going to share a clip from that beautiful song during the outro. And I hope y'all will check out the the full song and all of Amber's music. Before I let everyone go here, would you just share one tip for self-love? Because I know that's so important to you. Mm. Um, I would say to journal. Um, journaling has been such a pivotal, critical part of my self-love journey. Um, journal and read it. And um, it's like people can come alongside you and walk this journey with you, but nobody can do it for you. So um, journaling for me was my way of saying, okay, like I, I'm getting all of these this encouragement from other people and things like that, but now what am I going to do? Um, and really looking at my heart and saying, okay, this is where I am. Where do I want to go? And really taking practical steps forward. So journaling would be um, what I would recommend and encourage people to do. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes or your podcast app on your phone wherever you're listening and leave a simple rating and review i would so appreciate it it helps us keep things going you can also follow along on spotify or iHeartRadio. have a beautiful girl boner embracing week Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.